Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. I'm Mackie O'Hara. This podcast is produced entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Department of Anthropology. Today, we have Dr. Noreen von Kremen Taubettel from State University of New York at Buffalo. She gave a talk in our department today, so welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself as an anthropologist. Um, so I'm a biological anthropologist, but I actually started, um, my initial training was in zoology. So I started being interested in evolutionary biology of a whole range of different organisms. But then I decided that I thought human evolution was the most interesting aspect of evolutionary biology. So I uh, trained as a biological anthropologist. Um, and now I would consider myself an evolutionary morphologist. So I'm most interested in studying um, the way in which our the morphologies of the form of our bodies and how evolution has shaped the shapes of our skeletons. So you study the cranium, the skull. How does that inform your perspective on evolutionary anthropology? Well, I do focus, um, most of my work has focused on cranial shape variation, so particularly looking at different human population, so looking at variation within the human species, um, but also other non-human primate species, so particularly looking at a whole range of apes, like gorillas and chimpanzees, orangutans. So the vast majority of my work has been focused on the skull, but in the last few years I've become increasingly interested in, in trying to look at other aspects of the skeleton, so not just the skull. However, the skull does give a lot of information about the evolutionary history, both in modern humans and in a whole range of different primates. So it's a very informative part of the morphology to, to study. In this series on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about migration and we've been covering the spatial aspect of how humans move. But it sounds like your work includes space and time as major components mm. of human evolution. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. So a lot, of, a lot of the work that I've done looking at modern humans, I've tried to sort of take time out of it in the, start, in the sense that I'm looking at the spatial relationships between different human populations because it, uh, it allows us to kind of have a simpler view of, of how modern human populations, um, how the variation is shaped by geographic space. But if we're wanting to think about human evolution, we have to, of course, take time into consideration. So we have evolutionary history that is across space and in deep time. Um, so even within the human species, I mean, we we've ev we evolved somewhere between 250 and 150,000 years ago. So there's been a lot of time for changes to happen within Homo sapiens, which is important for understanding patterns of, you know, genetic and morphological variation. So I study human evolution as well. I study teeth, but I look across major time scales for the most part, and I think I take more of a macroevolutionary approach. Do you take macroevolutionary, microevolutionary, and how would you define those two things? So the the link between micro and macroevolution is really important for for understanding human evolution. So macroevolution basically refers to the bigger scale changes uh, that we see in, for example, the human fossil record. So, um, and it's often driven by paleo 
anthropology or paleontology. So which fossils do we recover and what do those fossils look like? So we can get a sense of the pattern of human variation by documenting different human fossils, seeing where they are geographically and trying to date them. So we have some sense of the relationship between time and space and morphology. But on the flip side, from an evolutionary theory point of view, we know that evolution has shaped those patterns that we observe. So we observe certain patterns and we know that they are the product of evolutionary processes. So if we go to a more micro scale, we're trying to figure out exactly how do evolutionary processes, so things like mutation, gene flow, genetic drift, natural selection, how do those processes shape patterns of variation in a more small scale? So if we can then make a link between the small scale patterns, so for example, maybe looking within a species or within a very small space of time, um, and then make a link between those processes that we understand and the patterns that we observe. So it's a continual sort of to and fro between the two different ways of looking at evolution. Um, also with microevolution you can sometimes study those things in a more experimental way. You know you can not necessarily with humans but you can figure out how evolution shapes morphology and then use that information to look at big patterns of variation in, say, the fossil record. And this is something that you do in your work. Um, I know this morning in your talk you were talking about how you can use evolutionary theory to build models and expectations of what you would expect to see across both space and time and how that works. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about what kind of expectations you come up with and how they play out in your research. Okay, so um Basically, if I look at most of my research really is looking at a more micro evolutionary level. So I'm not looking at big fossil patterns. I'm looking at I'm more interested in trying to understand how these micro evolutionary processes like genetic drift, etc., how they actually have shaped patterns of cranial variation in, in modern humans. So the way these model expectations work is that evolutionary theory gives us sort of parameters of expectation. So what we should, we should expect patterns to look a certain way if those patterns have been driven by certain evolutionary forces. So if, for example, um, gene flow is the only force that's affecting the way populations are related, or if natural selection has driven those, you know, has been the, the primary force driving those patterns, and by natural selection, I mean where populations develop traits that are beneficial for survival and reproduction in their particular environments. Then those are very different expectations. So they lead to very different models of expectation. So um, we can do this. We can sort of say a priori, this is what we expect is going to be happening. And then we go to our data. And in my case, I look at um, cranial shape data, but it could be other forms of data, other forms of morphological data, and then compare the data in some sort of statistical way against those patterns of expectation. Um, and then you can make inferences about what's going on with the morphology, like is it being driven by natural selection or is it being driven by genetic drift, for example. So we've talked in the podcast a little bit about DNA and genetics and how that plays a part in 
separating different populations and groups as they move throughout the world. Do you work with genetics? Um, I do. I mean, I, I'm not a geneticist per se, but what I'm interested in doing is making links between patterns that genet. So genetics gives us information about past population history. If we look at specific parts of the genome, it basically gives us uh, a window into the w the past population history. What I mean by that is exactly the the processes like who migrated where and what were the processes of dispersal and other demographic factors. Um, so the genetic, I use genetic data largely um, as a way of building models of expectation. So what I'm expecting my morphology to look like, not my morphology, but morphological data to look like if it were in in line with different models of expectation. Um, so I do use I mean, I use published genetic databases to build those models of expectation, and then I gather um, cranial shape variation data myself, which I then test against these models of expectation. Can you give us an example of how you might fit some of these models into data? Yeah, so one of the models um, that I commonly use is called the neutral model. And basically what this, what this model says is that if... Um, only neutral evolutionary forces have generated uh, between, within and between group patterns of variation, then we have a, specific expectations of what that should look like. And what I mean by neutral forces are um, if only mutation, gene flow and genetic drift have shaped particular patterns of variation, then that sets up very explicit expectations of what that should look like. And then from my own work, I've taken the human cranium and sort of split it up into different regions based on a whole series of, of different criteria. So I could split up the skull according to, for example, the function that that part of the skull um, has. So mastication or diet or chewing behavior is, is a function, obviously is something we do with our skulls. And the idea is that the regions of the cranium that are related to chewing might be different from say other cranial regions which aren't related to chewing. So I take these data and I compare them against the neutral model of expectation. And what I found is that most parts of the skull fit the neutral model pretty well, but some parts, for example, those relating to chewing behavior, particularly the lower jaw, do not fit the model so well. So what this says is that there are other evolutionary factors such as maybe natural selection or um, changes in particular populations depending on their diets, which are affecting the, the way in which morphology reflects genetic relationships. So when you run into these sorts of things, when the data doesn't fit the neutral model, what do you do next? What's the next step to untangle what happened in evolutionary time? That's a good question because it, that's where, I mean, once you don't get a fit with the neutral model, then you have to start thinking about what are the other potential factors. So if it's natural selection, then there are a, a whole series of models that you can or, or um, processes that you can look for to see whether morphology is, is maybe more different. So basically, is in that particular part of the skeleton, for some populations, do they just look more different than what we would expect under a neutral model? So it, you have to then kind of go into your data set and, and sort of look at it in more detail. 
or you may have an idea that the reason it's not fitting the neutral model is because you've had some really big migration or dispersal event. So where people have, you know, moved in a really directional way. And we have several examples of this in human history where for whatever reason people have sort of migrated from one place to the other in a relatively short space of time and that then changes the way morphology is related to genetic variation. So it gets more tricky once you reject the neutral model, but it also gets more interesting because then you're starting to look at things that are have specific examples of um, of events that have happened in human history. Well, and anthropologists study all different parts of the human condition, the human body, the skeleton, the teeth, long bones, but we also study culture and we also study history. So how do you think that we should move forward and bring all of these things together and how how might they all be related okay well that's a that's a tough question but i think i mean from a skeleton point of view there's um a history in anthropology of people basically focusing on one part of the anatomy and i think that's largely being done because you know it takes a lot of expertise to know all aspects of anatomy in really really good detail so we tend to have people who study teeth and we have other people like myself who study skulls and then we have other people who study different parts of the the skeleton um, and whilst I understand what why this is done it has led I think to a disarticulation in, in terms of um, thinking about the skeleton as separate things rather than being part of the same body. Um, so I think from an evolutionary point of view, of course, you are one body when you are alive and you have one genome. So your genetic history is going to impact your entire body, not just your head and or your teeth or whatever. So for me personally, I think it's important that we start to figure out ways of comparing, maybe using some of these model testing approaches, comparing different parts of the skeleton to one another. There are going to be some problems. I mean, I think there are going to be some issues with doing this, but I think we we have more uh, methods at our disposal now in terms of capturing shape variation and, and also theoretical methods, which I think is going to make this easier going forward. I think that's a great point. And I think what you're talking about, how everyone has a genome at the basis of what you see as an entire human is a very good point but then there's also things like growth and development factors and how where you live and what you eat and what you do will all kind of shape you as a human mm -hmm. so that's something that we'd really like to talk more about in future episodes so i want to thank you so much for coming today and talking with us oh no problem it's been my pleasure thank you we're looking forward to reading more of your work and hopefully have you back one day. Some of the things that we've talked about today will actually come out in our next series, which is about growth and development, and that will come out around the middle of January. So for our listeners, stay tuned for that. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. And until we come back, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at A Story of Us OSU. Next time, we'll keep continuing to explore A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department.